worked for the Newcastle Chronicle and the Liverpool Echo and now works for... Is it still the biggest newspaper in Britain? Yes, yeah, because we overtook uh, The Sun, I think, last year. Yeah. It was midway through through lockdown. It's not a bad thing to be able to say that I work for them. Indeed. Yeah, I am going to mention the name. I'm not avoiding it. But um, <laughs> what do people say when you tell them you work for the Daily Mail? Well, that's... A, you know, not everyone likes it. And to be fair, like, when I first got the job, you know, my own mum was sort of, oh, you know... <laughs> you know, it's not the most... You know, well, it must be the most popular because it's the best selling. But among some people, it's not the most popular. But then, like my mum says, don't worry, he works for the sport department. <laughs> yeah, you're just with the toys. Um, I, I went for a job at a well-known broadsheet which leans heavily to the right, kind of landed gentry to the right. And uh, I didn't get the job in the end, but Jim White works for it. Johnny Lou worked yeah. for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is this kind of, can you guess where we are yet? But um, yes. no, because you are... I think you'll get so many garlands and praise for this book, The Beautiful Game and the Ugly Truth, Football's Tragic Link with Dementia. A fun way to spend a couple of hours reading about something that is so big. It's not just the elephant in the room, it's the elephant in the house. It's that big an elephant. Uh, The forward is by Chris Sutton, and Chris wrote about both dementia and his dad, Mike, who since passed away. In his book, You're Better Than That... Uh, which he wrote with Nigel Castle. Yep. Had you already consulted that book or met Chris before you asked yes. him to write the forward? Well, well, I'm I'm Chris's ghostwriter, yeah. so um, so I, I do the ghostwriting for the mail for our, for our columnists. One of them being Chris. Uh, so I've known Chris for quite a few years. Uh, he knew I'd lost my granddad to dementia. Uh, I knew he, he was losing his dad to dementia. Um, so we sort of we were joined with that, uh, and then the mail in November 2020 we. Uh, launched our campaign about dementia and football enough is enough campaign and chris was really integral to that and i I was part of that along with some of my colleagues like mike keegan Uh, so chris was totally on board and when i asked him if he'd do a forward you know he was he was thrilled to do it he was was more than happy to do it he's he's been a massive help he's an advocate he's a he's an ambassador for it chris can actually get a bad rap sometimes you know like i love listening to him on uh, 606 with Robbie Savage, you know, because, you know, Chris is great to listen to. In, oh, in come opinion. on, Kieran, surely you him. don't think that, really? I, I love him, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not just saying that because I know him. <laughs> yeah. But, he's, uh, but Chris, he's, he's an absolute dream to work with. Yeah, I mean, this morning, I've, I've actually, I went to the post office to send out some copies of the book, and I've sent one to Chris, and, you know, I've, I've written on the inside cover you know just something like i wouldn't have been able to do this without you so he'll be getting his copy in the next uh, couple of days um and i really wouldn't i wouldn't have been able to do it i think it's, that's that's the truth it's a credit also to his kids who have lost their grandfather uh and also yeah. to chris's mum um mike's widow um who writes yeah, the mean, conclusion the, of the book that's the thing I, I thought it was quite a nice symmetry to start the book with chris talking about his dad and end it with that letter that uh, Josephine sent me, and she actually sent me that a month before her husband Mike died in his care home. Like you say, you know, it's a bit—it's a depressing book, but it's a bit of a necessary evil. Because I remember when I got that letter off Chris's mum, and I was reading it, and then there was one line that just really took me aback. Was where it said, "She said I feared for my own sanity yeah. and had suicidal thoughts at times, so that we could finish our lives together." And Chris actually didn't know any of that. 
his mum had written this to me and then you know I, I showed the letter uh, to Chris and he phoned me and he was like, I didn't have a clue about any of that he's you know he didn't he didn't know that his own mum was feeling that way he learned from that letter that she very kindly wrote um, and you know and she spared no detail and why should you spare detail I suppose in a subject in a subject like this if you really want to drive home the reality of it and she definitely didn't spare any detail, but that was the one sentence where she said she'd com- contemplated a joint suicide for them so they could end their lives together. It was that really was what hit home for me as the you know the raw, real human toll of this dementia problem in football. It's the side you don't see, but it's out there. It's happening. Likewise, uh, thank you for that. Likewise, Chris, his dad, a shell of a man he once was. Um, did he? Do you think confide in Mark Chapman, who was also bereaved uh, during the pandemic? <laughs> I'm not too sure. I haven't spoken to Chris about that, and I haven't spoken to Mark myself, um, actually. Yeah. Um, just sorry, so just I, I, it just hit me because these are people who yeah. who do their job in presentation. And Chris, I listened to um, some of the Euro 2021 coverage. Who was the one? Uh, I can't remember the name of the guy because all I remember is Chris Sutton going, "He's the rooster," and he's brilliant, <laughs> Chris. Uh, I listened less and less to Five Live because I think it's a bit BBC Radio Bants, which is not the first time I've said that. Um, but I will definitely read Chris's columns. Now I know that you, Kieran Gill, are the ones who dots the I's and, and cross the T's. And uh, Chris may well be asked to talk about his late father, Mike, who was a footballer who had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, which yeah. uh, is the modern medical term for being punch drunk or dementia pugilistica. It's the kind yeah. of um, brain injury that boxers get when their skull reverberates around the head when they take a hit. And you would hope that footballers nowadays don't suffer that. But I was depressed more than anything to read that CTE could make its presence felt in this generation of footballers. We'll talk in the next hour about uh, the authorities and the medical nature and even the quacks who are incredibly sceptical about CTE. Uh, We know there's a special place in hell for them. Sorry, I'm allowed to be. You have to be um, fair and impartial. I I cannot be um, (laughs) because it's nonsense. Uh, But we'll talk about Hartlepool first because uh, I don't want to depress you initially. Uh, You helped me tick (laughs) off Hartlepool. We can read the 90... I'm reading the 92... Jeff Stelling is obviously above my pay grade, so I've gone to the second most famous, third famous <laughs> Hartlepool fan, because Hangus the Monkey is the second most famous, yes. right? Yeah, and then uh, Meatloaf was famously a fan of Hartlepool United as well. Hence what I'm sure, when Meatloaf sadly passed away, I'm sure Hartlepool United put a statement out <laughs> saying, uh, saying how sorry they were, you know, to hear about his, his passing. So maybe I'm the fourth most famous, I don't know. Well, yeah, I'll I'll go to the fourth now that I'm now that I've got this book coming out. Humble, <laughs> humble as ever. Uh, the book which we will hammer because that's what you're here to promote: the beautiful game and the ugly truth. Footballer's tragic link with dementia. I think I can file it with David Conn's book about FIFA and Andy Woodward's book on pederasty and football coaches. Um, but to happier things, uh, Hartlepool United, or Hartley Pools, as yeah. they were. When you grew up, it was Hartley Pool, not Hartley Pools. Well, yeah, because um, it was Cluffy who brought in in the pools, and I was I was always a bit I wasn't entirely sure where that came from, even growing up. But it's always been Hartlepool to me. But yeah, I was brought up a brought up a Hartlepool fan by my dad. I've actually he kept my the program for the very first match he took me to. I've got it framed up in my office at my house, and um, I think we're one of 
we hold a record for you know when they used to vote back in clubs to get you know re-election. when clubs finished yes. re-election. I think we hold the record for the most re-elections. So that's. I mean, it's nothing to brag about, but we've never actually won a trophy in our history. So oh, well, that's even worse than my club. Watford have yeah. won a couple of playoffs, and um, I think the Hart Senior Cup several times. But so Hartlepool are the Watford of the northeast. Yes, and well, you know, it's, we we make our own fun, like we do our fancy dress on the last away day of the season each year. Um, you know, you may have seen the pictures of when you've seen the Smurfs going up and down the London Underground and oh. and uh, people dressed as doctors and all that on the last away day of each season. So we make our own fun because it's not much fun on the pitch. You see, <laughs> that is proper football. And you, you, you're working for the Mail where you've got Martin Samuel, whose entire job is to moan and harangue and kind of shake his <laughs> fist at the world. Uh, I haven't had Martin Samuel in, but he remains one of the journalists of our era. He is brilliant. Yeah. What is he like? Oh, well, he's, he's br- I read every word he, he writes, because, you know, if you want any inspiration, shall I say, is that the right word? Yep. You know, if you, want, if you want any career goals, I think his is right up there. You know, because his columns weekly are fantastic. And, you know, I've done games... With him, yeah, I, I was in Frankfurt for the West Ham game in Europa League, and, and I was there with him. And you sort of, you sort of, you know, you sat, you sat next to him, and you know, he might not type anything during the first half, and then when it gets to half time, he he starts doing his match report, and then you read it afterwards, and it's poetry. So, brilliant. <laughs> you know, it's, he's he's a hard worker as well. You know, the amount of words he turns so out, so many week words. In, week out. It is something and, like four thousand words over two pages. Yeah, and to make it. You know, not only that, he's not just—he's not waffling on. If you get me, he, he's not just trying to fill fill the space any way he can. He's actually using each word with a purpose as well. So, so I think he's like I when I came through university, yeah, I was reading his stuff. <laughs> I was I was reading a lot of his his work. So it's it's quite nice to be able to sit next to him at football matches uh, now and then. Well. I don't know whom you'd rather spend an evening drinking with, uh, Martin Samuel or Michael Barron. <laughs> yeah, probably not Mike, probably not Mickey Barron. Not after <laughs> what he said to me ahead of playing that game. Uh, yeah, because yeah, that game, it was. I only got an invite a couple of weeks before, but I play, I play football regularly. I, play, I try and play about three times a week. I'm playing tonight. And I got invited to play in that, that charity game, and, and he was a hero of mine growing up. He was... You know, he played for Hartlepool, and I used to love watching him. I'm sure I've got a picture with him when I went to one of the awards evenings when I was just a little kid. Uh, and then as I'm walking out the tunnel, he said, have you played with ex-pros before? And I was just like, no. And he was like, oh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I should wait, say, wait yeah. this game was the first um, non-headed game. You couldn't head the ball outside the penalty area. Um, and yeah. there was one infringement very early on. Uh, by an ex-pro. Was it Craig Hignett? Uh, Mark Tinkler. Mark Tinkler, yes. Uh, And it's brilliant because my favourite books, and this is a stunning book, so thank you for writing it. I'm sure it was PTSD-inducing. It's out on pitch, and it's, is it $16.99 or $12.99? Yeah, a few of my my friends and family keep telling me, sending me screenshots that they've ordered it on Amazon. So it's coming out June 27th. That's right, which... um, as yeah. this goes out, this is going out on July 4th, so it's already been in for a week. I hope that people yeah. know about this, and if a male journalist can't get it out there, well, there's no hope for us all. 
Even those who have written books about the Youth Cup who has been featured on Mail Online, but that's by the by, and thank you for that. Um, so, yeah, you're playing in this game, um, and you can't head the ball. And this is close to your heart, A, because you lost your grandpa, but B, um, to bring it back to Hartlepool, I imagine you watched a lot of games of head tennis at, uh, off the top of my head, yeah. Victoria, the new Victoria? Yep. Yeah. Victoria Park, yeah. Yeah. Lump it long, I'm sure, you know, that used to be our, when I was growing up, that's what football was for me, watching it in, was it League Two back then, or it had been Division the Three, third possibly? Division, yes. Third Division, yeah, so... Mm. You know, I saw a lot of lump it long, get it in the mixer, see see where it lands, that type of football. Until I got to watch one of my favourite footballs was Adam Boyd. He was actually silky on the ball. But before that, it was a lot of lump it long, heading it. And, you know, Mark Tinkler, who did the first infringement of that no-heading charity game, he uh, he used to play for Hartlepool. I used to watch him play for Hartlepool. The ball just got lump long. I think it was only about three minutes into that game of no-heading. And he headed it back and, you know, everyone just burst out laughing. <laughs> you know, everyone on the bench just burst out laughing. Everyone on the pitch burst out laughing. Referee blew his whistle, free kick uh, for the crime of heading the ball. And, and Tinks was just, just sort of looking around, bemused, and was just like, oh, I was just testing you. But he clearly just, he forgot the rules of this no-heading football game <laughs> very momentarily. But when you've spent a lifetime heading balls back in the other direction when a ball's lumped long... I think it's easily done, so we could forgive him for that. But that was actually the only infringement well, of that entire game. It was the only headed infringement. I think someone conceded a penalty with a push in the back, Kieran Gill. Yes. Yeah, that was never a penalty. Oh, I bet. I mean, believe me, I've seen it enough time in my mind's eye every time I try and go to sleep and I think how I embarrass myself on that charity game in front of hundreds of fans. But ah, he was soft. I think that was a ex-professional player knowing what he was doing. Street-wise. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he felt my arm in his back and he just said, I'm going to make the most of this. Yeah, so I gave away a penalty. So I, I didn't play well. <laughs> well a, a, Mickey Barron was right. It, it's not easy when you go up against ex-pros because some of them, like Craig Hignett, his boots were falling apart. I love that. His studs were covered. He was sat in the changing room being like, has anyone got a spare pair of boots? And he was just picking off bits of his boots because they were just coming apart in his hands. And, but he was still on the pitch after he got a spare pair. I mean, he's he's getting on now, but he was always in space, and I was running around like a headless chicken. I reckon he ran about covered about I don't know about a tenth of the distance I covered, and yet he was always the one on the ball in space making things happen. Ah, but that's well, just that's just the ex-pro's mind, isn't it? No, well, that's very interesting because football, as we're finding out in the modern era, is about space. It's like music. The best music is what happens between the notes, when how, how often yeah. you're silent. So I wanted to ask you, before I forget anything else, are we now in an era where brain comes before brawn, at least at elite level? I think, I think that's, that's where we're getting to. I think especially with, you know, everyone wants to be Man City now. You watch... You watch Brighton trying to be Man City under Graham Potter. Very few teams go for that lump it long. They like to pass it. And I'm, I'm sure I've, uh, there's somewhere in the book where I mentioned statistics that we're getting closer to the record number of passes per game. Yeah, about a thousand. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's getting closer and closer to that to that number. And I think that's because they like pretty passing now. You know, that's the way it's the way it is. Because I grew up watching it, like I say, lumped along into the mixer get that second ball and just 
give it a go and test the defenders, see how good they are in the air, get it wide, cross it in. Whereas now, it's more of a tiki-taka, you know, in the Premier League. Is at least that's the way I see it. Yeah? I don't know if you if you agree, disagree. Well, I saw Watford a lot last season. There was neither tiki nor tacker because we just couldn't <laughs> win. There'll be it'll be good this year. Well, we've got Rob Edwards this year, and who knows how well we're going to do because Rob Edwards is going to be an England manager one day. Uh, watch this space. I don't know if you yeah. are. Uh, looking forward to any championship fixtures this year. Do you cover many Premier League games or anything? I'm mainly Premier League, but I do the occasional championship. Um, and I've been to Watford a few times. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I quite like going to, uh, to Vicarage Road. Because I, like, I quite like it when you have a stadium squeezed into surrounding houses, if you get me. That's right. Well, I was born in the hospital next door. And so I always said oh. the first thing I saw was the football club. They're thinking about putting another stand on it. But um, if we have the kind of luck that we had last year, i.e. none, uh, then it doesn't bode very well. Elton John, uh, as this goes out, has just played two dates at the stadium where he used to play as a fundraiser. Tickets are scary. Um, but Elton, I think, is has a direct line to the manager as one of the honorary presidents. And we're very lucky, Watford, uh, that we've got a couple of Jeff Stelling, Kieran Gill, Hangus the Monkey, Meatloaf figures for us. Yeah. Um, I must well, just he, ask... Um, go on. No, go on. I mean, it's, it's funny because when you go into the... You'll have been in the press room, I'm sure, at uh, Vicarage Road uh, a few times. And, you know, you've got the walls are just adorned with, with pictures of Elton John. And I, I remember the first time I went there, I was a bit bemused, but... Yeah, you just get used to because you know I'm sure I'll have taken a picture and sent it to my other half and being like this is a first I've never seen you know pictures of someone like Elton John on the wall of a football press room but you know uh, it's clearly very you know it's a very proud link to have and like you say I'm fairly sure he does have a direct line to the manager. Yeah, well. Uh, he used to ring people. I think he rang Kike up and said, you've got to sign Lee Gregory. He's a great player for the lower leagues. But I think Elton will come and watch uh, this season, um, along with all the other ex-Watford players. Um, I, I imagine a couple of them uh, have got CTE. John McClelland is a postie. He's still compost mentis. He was a kind of Rolls-Royce of a player. Uh, John McClelland, one of the best footballers to play for Watford. Uh, but the thing that stands out in this book, which I hope gets a lot of airtime, is that the modern football is actually heavier than the old football. Yeah, so that was in... That's the thing. When I was starting to write this book and I was speaking to various people and I, I, I tried to speak to people who didn't know, you know, non-experts, people who just football fans, essentially, just to see what they, they were thinking so that I could get an idea of what I should try and answer for them. And the thing that always came back was, well, it's the old leather football, isn't it? You know, it's oh, it's that old hev- heavy lump that got heavier when wet. Well, actually, you know, I started digging into that, and I spoke. It was, you know, I spoke to Professor Willie Stewart, who, for a time on his Twitter bio, he he had no, it's not all down to the old leather footballs, and I found that interesting. So I spoke to him, and, and I tried to find out why. And just the more digging I did, the more evidence I found that well, actually, it could be as bad of a problem now as it was back then. I think I even I ended that chapter talking about the England world champions winning with the leather ball and I, I think I end the chapter on something like they think it's all over when really this might be just the beginning of a very big problem, something like that. But yeah, it is actually like the modern day ball and 
I think I've got them here actually. The 1889, the laws of the game said it had to be between 12 and 15 ounces in weight, whereas the laws for 2021 last season said between 14 and 16 ounces. So really, the ball sitting in that centre circle could be 16 ounces, whereas the ball sitting in the centre circle in 1889 could be four ounces lighter. I don't think a lot of people realise that or know that. The, the book is full of these portentous sentences which may well be found at the front of the newspaper this week with regard to the rail strikes that we're not going to talk about. Um, this, the opening paragraph is just incredible. I, I told someone last night at Orchestra, most of the 1960 title winners for Burnley have got yeah. dementia. Most. A majority of that 11. And of course, even for those without dementia, um, that title win have, has... Um, disappeared over the horizon it's 62 years ago but you have Chris Sutton saying that the authorities have blood on their hands the game looked the other way um and you you try to inject some humanity into proceedings by using first names I think that was a good decision for you to do that yeah I I made that decision early on well actually I say early on I'd probably already written about 8,000 words of the book when I when it sort of sprung on me it just didn't feel right when I was referring to Jimmy Robson as Robson or Jeff Assel as Assel. I wanted, you know, it felt maybe it's a little bit inhumane. It felt like I was just talking about them as if they were footballers, you know, the names on the back of the shirts, you know, because we refer to modern day footballers by by the surnames as we always have done. But I just, I wanted to inject a bit more humanity so that people could realise, you know, these are human beings. These just aren't guys going out there on a Saturday at 3 p.m. for our entertainment with the names on the back of the shirts. You know, so that's that's sort of why I went through the book and I used the first names. And, you know, I cleared it with my publishers because it's unusual because um, the style of most books and every newspaper is to use surnames at the second mention. But publishers kindly backed me on it. They said, no, we think this is a good idea. And I hope it is. I, ho- I hope yeah. people are OK with that. I know the feeling because I spoke to a man called Ian Doyle and I used his first name because he's a journalist. He's... He's not a player. I don't. I didn't want to say Doyle continues. He's an Ian, and he's a very nice man. Yeah. Um, whom you yeah. worked with at the Echo. David Prentice would have been your editor. Preno. Yeah. Preno, correct. Uh, what did you cover I'm... for the Echo? Was were you on both beats? So when I joined there, um, it was when I'd just joined the trainee scheme for the for the mail, and I think it's quite a good idea what the mail do. They sort they send you out there somewhere to a, somewhere regional. I'd never been to Liverpool before. He sent me there, and I'm pretty sure my prerogative was uh, go there, get all your, mist- all your mistakes out of your system and come back to us squeaky clean, yeah. um, uh, which is fine. It threw me into the thick of it because I was doing all sorts of things like, you know, low-down cricket, but then I was also doing uh, Everton, which was the, my main beat that I was helping them on. Um, and it was great. So I got to speak to Roberto Martinez because he was a manager at the time. It was, I loved it. It reminded me a lot of Newcastle, which yeah. is where I'd lived before that, but it was fantastic. Oh, I'd love, to, I'd love to ask yeah. you about Mohammed bin Salman, but time is too short. <laughs> uh, as it is to really go into depth about Jeff Assel, because um, the Males campaign and Dawn Astor has been... Uh, why she hasn't got a damehood for her campaigning, hell only knows. But uh, mm. rather than get you to rehearse this anthology-worthy chapter, if anyone reads anything... It's the Jeff Astle, the reminder of the campaign for justice. I think Jeff Astle was important because younger fans knew who he was because of Fantasy Football League. Yeah. And 
a lot of these older players played in not black and white, but the black and white color age. It, even Jack Charlton, no one under the age of fifty would have seen Jackie Charlton play football because he retired in the seventies. Um, yeah. So I, I suppose what I was going to ask is: Is it going to take a name? Is it going to take an Alan Shearer, a Duncan Ferguson to have dementia for people to really, truly stop the faff? Because they are still faffing at the moment. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. Because, I mean, I find it amazing how so many of the 1966 England team have developed dementia, yet it's still got question marks around it. But as you say, maybe it's going to take... I, th- I think what it's going to take is it's going to take players from the era where they're only using the synthetic footballs. Because at the moment, that's the little escape clause that some people... Are still holding on to. Oh well, maybe it's down to the leather footballs, and then they can, you know, they can kick this problem down the road 30, 40 years. But then, when we start getting players who have only played with synthetic footballs, these elastic Nike little gizmos that fly around the pitch, I, I reckon then we'll start to, we'll start, people will start to understand that actually this isn't a problem. This isn't a problem going away. You very early in the book you list all the players, including uh, Norbert Peter Styles, Nobby Styles, who have died of dementia. It would be too tasteless to say give us an eleven uh, of the um, of those who have suffered dementia. But both Charlton brothers, George Cohen, the England right back, Dave Watson, uh, the other centre back, yeah. England's forgotten captain. Uh, that's a, it's a great piece about that. And it's player after player after player. It would be horrible if Big Al, um, who did that TV show around the time, were you involved in the TV show or did you just watch as an interested spectator? This was Al looking at dementia and, and heading the ball. Yeah, I think it was, was it called uh, Football Dementia and Me. Yes. I think it was called um, for the BBC, if I remember right. Yeah. yeah um, I wasn't involved in, in that documentary. I'm not, I can't remember what year that 2017, out, I think you said in the book. You know, I've watched it several times, and you know, Professor Willie Stewart is in there, and you know, I've spoke to Alan Shearer in the past, and uh, you know, a lot of the key players that Alan had spoken to in that, I, I spoke to as well to get their expertise. But it was it was interesting, and you know, fair play to to Alan Shearer for actually broadcasting and trying to get awareness out there, because this, you know, that. It sounds mad to think it was five years ago. It doesn't seem like five years ago that that it came out. Uh, but then five years down the line, brought out this book on the topic and it's still being talked about. Yes, uh, The Beautiful Game and the Ugly Truth, Football's Tragic Link with Dementia, published by Pitch, uh, came out last Monday. I mean, it'll sell out. It'll get a reprint and it's, it's dreadfully sad that that's the case. Uh, you mentioned Willie Stewart and his field study uh, in 2018-19 where he investigated 7,500-plus footballers with a control group of 23,000 non-players, uh, and they split for the era to see if the era of the person made yes. a difference. And the conclusion was that footballers are four times at risk for motor neurone disease, double at risk for Parkinson's, and it's stark that bodily injuries are not paid as much attention to as cerebral ones. I just wanted to tie that in uh, with uh, the American lady who said that um, concussion is not a casserole illness. That will stay with me. Yeah, yeah she was there. Uh, that's Catherine Snedeker. Because Catherine, I can't remember who put me in touch with Catherine, but she's a fascinating lady. She lives over in uh, on the outskirts of New York. And we had several 
Zoom conversations because she's a passionate advocate for for women and CTE. Because you know it's not rarely research is rarely female focused, and and she wants she thinks that's wrong and it is wrong uh, because it happens to women too. As you know, Sue Lopez was the first female footballer to link her dementia condition to her her football career, but. When I was speaking to Catherine in the casseroles, I just thought it was a brilliant metaphor what, what she used. She she mentioned she's uh, she's uh, got divorced uh, with her husband, uh, and a friend brought her over a casserole. She'd been diagnosed with cancer, you know, and friends brought her over a casserole. I think it was Hurricane Sandy destroyed mm-hmm. her home, and you know, friends brought her a casserole. Uh, but she's been concussed several times in her career, quite badly so. And every time she was concussed, she didn't get a casserole. <laughs> she, and she sort of just saw so obviously being concussed doesn't carry the same weight as all these other bad things that can happen in life. And yet being concussed, uh, concussions and sub-concussions, can actually be what gets you in the end or at least takes your mind away from you. And she just thought that was really wrong. And I quite liked her little casserole metaphor she kind of let me put that in the Mm. include that in the book no i'm very grateful for that is she and are you going to donate your brains to the brain bank at boston university she is she has already i'm not sure if she's done it to boston or if she's oh i think she said one in new york yeah yeah i think she might have selected a, a different brain bank but it'll still be going to research all the same and as for me i'm i'm an organ donor i'm already signed up as one so whatever anyone needs after I'm gone, it doesn't bother me. Um, and you, It's funny because I think there's a couple of parts in the book when I mention sort of like the first NFL player who signed up to donate his brain while he was playing. Um, and he, he sort of, you know, he meant he's, he's got that attitude as well. He's like, you know, if someone wants my brain after I'm dead, I don't, I don't mm. care. They can take it if it, if it helps by all means. And, you know, I, you know, I'm not a professional football, but I mean, I play amateur football about two, three times a week. Uh, you know, you don't do a lot of heading, but still, my brain could still hold a few answers because um, then they could use my brain as a as a control, as a control brain, yes. as a control to compare it to a footballer's brain and say, right, well, here's a lad who didn't head balls week in, week out. Here's a lad who did. Let's compare them. I'm an organ donor, so whatever anyone wants in the off in the future. If you read, <laughs> yes, quite. If you read this book, you will see beyond reasonable doubt, which is the standard of proof used in criminal cases, that football has, um, beyond reasonable doubt, failed in its duty of care to its professionals. In the 1960s, there are articles on former players having headaches. Gary's Pallister complained of having migraines and feeling sick. Neil Ruddock could not remember scoring a goal in a famous Liverpool game. In 1984, how dangerous is heading article in, where was it? Just remind us. FIFA magazine. FIFA magazine. Uh, The British Medical Journal articles in the 1990s and The Lancet revealed brain lesions on players. And then we get to the brick walls hammered by Dr. John Rowlands. God, that chapter made me angry. Yeah, and he's he's a lovely man, uh, is John, because he, 
I started getting in touch with him and we had a few phone conversations and he, you know, he's he's getting on, is John, but he said, I'll, I'll go out in my garage and I'll see what I can find. Next thing I know, he sent me a message, said, I've, I've sent you some documents and then I get these big fat folders full of where over the course of his medical career, he's he's kept all these documents where he tried to force football into into trying to do something <laughs> about this problem. And you just you hit brick wall after brick wall. You, you know, I, I don't give the PFA an easy ride by any means in the book, but they were the only ones who were willing to put up some money to Dr. Rawlins to help him fund his study. But the trouble is he couldn't find anyone else. And when he went back to the PFA, he said, ah, oh, well, we can't fund it all ourselves. So, And that was that. He just kept sort of infuriating to because th- what he was proposing was very, very similar to the eventual field study that came out. So we could have had all this back in the 1990s. Yeah. Could have, you know, we could have been 30 years ahead of where we are now. But instead, they just ignored Dr. John Rawlins. And I was quite glad to be able to tell his story because it could have been very different had he been listened to. Mm. Dr. Mike Sadler also took up the cause. He also served. Uh, and so I thought, OK, well, if the FA aren't going to get involved, what about outside donations? There was a dinner and a charity game that were planned, but they were cancelled. Yeah, and that was, um, I think it was Jackie Charlton due to yep. speak at one of those, if I remember, if I remember right. And obviously J- Jack went on to get dementia himself. It just, everything seemed to fall through. Like John says in the book, you know, it wasn't through a lack of trying. You know, he was juggling his own career as a GP in Liverpool at the same time, but he felt a duty to uh, the Mercers because he was very close to Joe Mercer. And he he wanted to try and make something happen and find out answers for, for Joe's widow, uh, Nora. And, but he just, he just couldn't. But then, you know, what's, What's one man, what's one GP going to do against the machine that is football when when football doesn't want to do a thing about it? Yeah, and tell me what happened to the FA and the PFA when they launched a longitudinal study into heading in, I think, the 2000s? Uh, that was sort of in reaction to, to Jeff Assel's yeah. death. Um, they had promised the Assels, right, we're going to look into this, and the Assels took them on good faith. They, they thought, well, great, you know, we've seen what's happened to Dad, you know, Jeff Ossell choked to death in front of his family, and you know while he was trying to a blow, while he was trying to get his mouth open to get whatever was jammed in there, he was just keeping his jaw clamped shut because his mind just he just couldn't comprehend the consequences of what was happening, and he and he passed away um, in front of his family at their home. But it's you know so the FA after the coroner determines that it was death by football, and by the way that's what it says, you know that's what it says on. Jeff Hassel's death certificate, you know, he was killed by football. They, they launched this longitudinal study, which was supposed to take 10 years, and these, they'd have answers after five and 10 years. But it was just swept under the carpet. It was just nothing happened with it. If you hear all the different sides, there's different excuses. You know, oh, the players dropped out. They didn't become professional. We lost contact. There was, uh, when I spoke to Gordon Taylor, he he accused the researchers involved of bickering amongst themselves and causing problems and uh, having arguments. But the bottom line is this study just didn't happen. It was put in a drawer and that drawer was locked and never opened. Uh, no one told the assholes about it. They were sort of exercising patience, thinking, well, you know, they'll come to us when there's answers. But it wasn't until a Mail on Sunday journalist 
uh, Sam Peters, went to them and said there's no evidence this was ever done, that I suppose it was like a volcano going off because they were furious. And, I mean, if the FA thought they were going to sweep the assholes under the rug, I think they chose the wrong family and the PFA as well. Yes, well, it's been fascinating reading because Mum gets the mail on Sunday, uh, which is a different paper, as we know. Yeah. Or is it? Yeah. No, I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> we haven't got time for the politics of the Daily Mail. Read Private Eye. Um, but no, so I'd, I'd follow the campaigning journalism. Look, if the campaigning journalism was better at the front as it is at the back, we'd have a different country. QED. I'm allowed to say that. You aren't because you're bound by a country. Yeah. But <laughs> again, I, I was going to ask if you had a duty of care or a mission to help Dawn and keep Jeff's name alive. But of course, you say in the book... Uh, having lost your grandpa, who worked in a colliery, uh, having lost him to dementia, very close to the books, only five years ago, are you in contact with people who worked at the colliery with him, who either maybe have dementia or, or saw your grandpa um, fade? Well, not. I, I mean, I speak to my nana yeah. almost every. You know, she, my nana turns ninety in August, oh, and I was speaking to her the other day about me, about my granddad, and because I, I told her my book's coming out next week and um and she was she was talking to me about my granddad's and what he was like towards the end and she was like oh you, you know because I, re- I remember what he was what he was like we'd be walking down the street and he'd see my granddad was in his late 80s and he'd see someone in his 20s and he'd be like i know him he used to work down down the coal pit oh, oh great great worker and he'd he'd start walking over to him to introduce him and, and be like, hey, I, I remember you. We worked down the pit together, and you'd have to sort of say to the, you know, you'd sort of whisper to the other bloke, sorry, he's, he's got dementia, you know. And, you know, nine times out of ten, whoever he did that to, he'd, he'd humour my grand and just be like, yeah, it's, it's good to see you. What's your name again? You know, oh, it's Bob. Oh, yeah, Bob, I remember you. Mm. You know, were, people were good as gold with him, but I've only, I've only got one tattoo, and it's my granddad's name on my leg. And I got that when I turned, on the day I turned 18, I got that on my leg because my granddad was just my absolute hero. But when, as he got dementia, um, I used to sort of point to my tattoo and I'd be like, "Who's that? Whose name's that?" And it, you know, he just look at him. He didn't, you know, he didn't have a clue. But then when I said it's your name, and he'd be like, "Ah, oh, like you know, he'd, he'd light, he'd light up," and like you know, bless him. To what I don't know if many people, you know, a lot of people. Not people with dementia. Yeah, my great uncle Henry, um, my grandma's brother, was in a home for about four years, and it was by the time it ended, it was just it was time. Yeah, and I mean, you know, sometimes you can get lucky, and you have you know people who sort of are happy with dementia. Like my granddad was quite happy a lot of the time. You know, I'd say to him, "Who am I?" Uh, and I'm his grandson, but he'd, he'd say, "You're my best friend," something like you know, something mm. like that. Um, or he'd think my nana, his wife, was was his mum, and. If my nana was shouting at him or being like, "Why haven't you? Do you want to come do the dishes?" He'd, he'd turn to me and be like, "Why is my mum shouting at us?" You know, like little cute stuff like like that. My granddad was quite cute like that. But from speaking to a lot of people with this book with CTE, a lot of people can go quite violent, quite aggressive. You know, they could, they could have been a gentle giant when they were a footballer, but then later in life once dementia takes hold they get very aggressive they lose all the patience they start being a bit violent uh, in the home and that that was quite hard to hear when you're speaking when you're speaking to these families to the widows because you know i always ask them why you why have you actually decided to speak to me why are you speaking up you know because i love my husband 
and that comes after a half an hour conversation about you know how horrible he turned after he got dementia but it wasn't it wasn't his fault and part of that with this book i think it's it's a bit comforting to know well it wasn't his fault it's it was football that changed him you know it was this imbalance in his brain caused by cte you know that that's why when sometimes when these relatives these former footballers pass away and their families uh, ask professor willie stewart to examine their loved one's brain and he says yes he had cte i think john stars the son of nobby stars told me he said it you know, it was vindication. It was, it was relief because now, you know, now we know. It still makes you very angry because then you're angry at football because yeah. it, it just changed these loved ones so much. Well, not as angry as I was, and we, it's in the book, uh, but there are some scientists, quacks, basically, who say, no, 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 CTE isn't as bad as you think it is. Well, read the other 170 pages of the book where you will also <laughs> learn... This is what Pitch do in the books. Learn in this book, uh, but we'll find out what your favourite header is. And I was trying to think of my favourite header, and all I could think of was J.J. Demerit scoring in the playoff final for Watford in 2006. And I wasn't even there to see it. I can barely remember in the last few years seeing someone score with his header. Not like an iconic one, is it? Because I, I think I put in the big mind was that Lionel Messi, you know, salmon out of water leap against Man United yeah. in the Champions League final. Uh, but, you know, this... It's hard to think of your favourite favourite header. I think I wrote that in a chapter where I was debating what head, football with that heading would look like and whether we'd miss it. It's hard. To, it's hard to tell until we actually set up a trial and we can see what it actually looks like. I think that's one of the questions you can ask an audience because this book could well go on tour. You donate some of the proceeds of the beautiful game and the ugly truth. Football's tragic link with dementia to Alzheimer's charities or. Dementia UK. Uh, it'll be, yeah, it'll, it'll be different dementia charities. Uh-huh. So I was thinking. So based on however many I sell each month, um, whatever sales I get, then I'm just going to pick a different charity. Well, the Jeff Assel Foundation. As one Ex- exactly, mm-hmm. Jeff Assel Foundation Head for Change is a very good charity as well. So it'll be. I'm going to vary it and and pick different ones. Mm. And I, I've I've written down there was concussion in the Champions League final, Carrius the World Cup final, Kramer who um, yeah. I think it's eight eight years almost to the day today, that World Cup final. And then Raul Jimenez in the Premier League, which got Petr Cech very alarmed. Um, yeah. So those are all mentioned. These are very, very well-watched games. And concussion in Qatar, are you going to Qatar? I think I'm doing it from home. OK, this, that's fine. Uh, because cause I'm, I'm the ghostwriter, so, so when I'm ghostwriting for all, all my columnists, uh, I don't really need to be out there. I could... Correct. Just, I, I can do from the comfort of the living room, can Yes, through the office with the programme. Uh, give us the roll call of people whose columns you ghost. So I've got Chris Sutton, uh, Martin Keown, Jamie Redknapp. Uh, I've just been doing Mark Clattenburg. And mm. uh, and then, you know, we're getting getting a, another one, a new a newbie for the next season. Hmm. <laughs> Who could it be? I've got an idea, and he does have a book out in November, but I'm not going to mention that esteemed former West Ham player. But that's my guess. You're not going to say. Um, no, I, I, I'll, I'll give you that one for free. It's not, it's not him. It's not Mark Noble. <laughs> Damn. No. I, th- I thought I was going to get an exclusive. <laughs> we'll find out because you'll do a kind of player X comes, Erin Cuthbert or whoever it is, <laughs> comes to the mail. But yeah, what's it like talking to someone in Clats who officiated 
in an era before video assistance. And now every week the story is out. Well, I'm going all Chris Sutton, aren't I? And I've read you're better than that. And he's very, I think he's pro VAR, but against the way it's being used. Yeah. I mean, it's because it's interesting because I, with Klatz, you know, he's, um, I think he still lives over in Greece because yes. he's been working over there but I, th- I think he might be back home now um, but you know I'll I'll be watching a footy game or something and something very controversial will, will happen and I'll I'll take a clip and I'll send it to him on WhatsApp and then we'll have a debate and I mean it's some of the intricacies of you don't really realise until you speak to these referees like some he knows some of the laws of the game word for word you know you can just recite them off by heart and you know of course people will say well that's his job we should know that but I, I'll find a facet where, it, where when I can send him something I'll be like how oh, was this disallowed or something and he'll quote the law word for word I'll be like oh yeah fair play then you were right <laughs> it's quite nice getting that, that bit of insight yes for sure um, Game Changer is is it called Game Changer I think uh, Mark Clattenburg's book it was out in hardback um, is it out in paperback now I think it's out in both, yeah. Whistleblower, yeah. Yes. So you will be, well, you're a G, so you won't be too far away uh, from the book of Clats on the shelves because your book will be shelved with, well, hundreds of books. Um, Which books do you enjoy? Which book have you enjoyed reading in the course of your life? Well, funny enough, on my bookshelf, I I think my favourite book is... I quite like Michael, Hugh McIlvanny on football. Yeah. And that's that's my favourite all-time book because sometimes when I'm... If I'm writing an interview of, of some kind um, and I'm a bit stumped, you know, and I want to try and make it flow... Like, I, I did an interview with Andrei Shevchenko a few months back and I, was sort of, and I was sort of like, this is a Ukrainian talking about his homeland where his mum still is is living in Kiev in the midst of a war. Uh, and I was thinking I need to do it justice. And I just I had this block and I couldn't think of how to write it, how to start the intro, how I should go into it. So I just sat down and I picked up Makovani on football, which I've read a dozen times over probably, and I just read a few a few pieces that he'd written. And, you know, then all of a sudden just something clicks in you. And then it's a bit like we were saying about Martin Samuel, uh, you know, you can you can read his writing and feel a bit inspired. That's why Hugh McAvaney on football is my favourite football book. Here, here, and and while we're talking about famous Fleet Street journalists, Mike Keegan's written a book about Oldham um, that I'm yep. scared to read because I know I'll get annoyed about Len Sagam. Do you often talk to Mike Keegan about what's going on at Oldham because Oldham are going to be playing in uh, the National League next season? That story's running and no, running. We, we, we haven't actually spoken about Oldham. I mean, I'm not used to talking to people about clubs that are now beneath Hartlepool. Yes, quite right. <laughs> you know, Hartlepool are usually in the basement somewhere. Um, Do you get back? Seems to... mad. Do you, are you able to get up to Victoria Park at all? No, not that often. Not um, even on Tuesday someti- night? Well, sometimes even if they come down south, then I'll try and get to a game. You know, I managed to get the Saturday off when they played Crystal Palace. In, yes, in the um, In the FA Cup. I made the mistake of taking my other half, Gemma, because uh, it, it was awful. You know, Crystal Palace's away end is just a hot, sweaty mess. With a pillar it's, in front of it. Uh, yeah, it's, mm. you know, it's, it's not the nicest away end. And it was just, 
I'm sure there were too many Hartlepool fans there. The space was crowded, you couldn't move. And we lost, I think, about 3-0, something like that. Uh, you know, just swept aside by, by a great team. But, you know, I still enjoyed it. I got to see all my school friends coming down. You know, they'd all travelled five, six hours down south and I'd, I'd come about half an hour down the road. So that was quite <laughs> Which nice. bit of London are you? Uh, well, I live in Gravesend now, so ah. in Kent. That's a lovely yeah. commute to Northcliffe House, which I walked past the other day. Have you been at home most of the last two years? Yeah, well, I've, I've um, even before the pandemic, I was um, a roving reporter, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. So out, out and about. Uh, but for the next, I mean, starting tomorrow, because I'm going tomorrow, so, um, so for the next 18 days, I'll be at Wimbledon every day. I think you'll be seeing Jim White. Um, I think Matt Dickinson might be doing Wimbledon, uh, if not Barry yeah. Flatman. Yeah, there's a whole crew of tennis reporters. But tennis becomes England sport for not even two weeks because they don't have a middle weekend. But um, yeah, gosh, and who are you looking forward to seeing at the championships? I'm a bit ashamed that I'm always a Federer fan. You're allowed. Then... They're allowed. Jeff Dye has but... written a book on Federer, which is being serialised in a couple of weeks on Radio 4. Yeah, and you know, I mean, unfortunately, I, I don't think Federer, he's not playing, is he? So he's, oh, no, he isn't. So, I mean, that, you know, I always love, I've, I've been very lucky um, to see a few Wimbledon finals from covering it for the mail. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think, as of as of right now, um, we might look like fools when this comes out, might we, if he, if he ends up. But I don't think he is. But other than that, I mean, you know, Radicano, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what she does, and my colleague Mike uh, Mike Dixon's just written a book. Yes, uh, on Emma Raducanu as well. Yes, I, I did see that, and my first thought was, "Wow, how quick was that deadline?" Because he'd have had to write <laughs> that kind of on amphetamines in a week to get. I the did thing. think that because because this book that I've written has taken me a good part of two two and a half years, but then when I saw that's that's yeah. a fair play. Fair play, yeah. Absolute, absolutely. And um, witness history, I just heard this morning on the World Service, I was reminded of the Isna Mahu game in uh, 2010. The umpire, they spoke to the umpire, who's um, a very famous chap, uh, the Moroccan who moved to Sweden, Mohamed Al... You'll know who he is. Uh, Layani. Thank you. Yeah, you see? Yeah. You've, you've earned your points. That is deep, yeah. deep knowledge on the All England Championships because I lived in South West London I remember walking up to Wimbledon and there's a uh, on top of the hill there's a restaurant where the Williams sisters always ate Um, so we'll look to your journalism and just for my benefit when do you have to file every day what are your deadlines to hit for for for, for, say it's the Tuesday and you're reporting on play on the Tuesday so I'll be doing something daily called a court report which is where uh, which is where I do, I find about six or seven little little snippets. A bit like, you know, can you remember, you know, Charles Sale's agenda um, for the Daily Mail, mm-hmm. his, uh, his daily column. I like, you know, it's his, you know, he was fantastic at that. Mine, mine will be nowhere near as good, but I try and just find six or seven little tales every single day and file them. And then, and then I'll get hopefully put on a match a day. So if uh, the chief court, Chief tennis correspondent Mike Dixon, is he, if he's doing Andy Murray, you never know. You might get Radicanu on to cover that day. But it's quite a nice change of pace because from being used to covering football day in day out all year long, and then you get a nice few weeks of getting into the hustle and bustle of 
tennis. It's just a shame it takes about two, two and a half hours to get there from where I live. Yeah, and, and that's if the trains are running, fingers crossed. Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, it's a long way from Gravesend to Wimbledon. I do not... What, what do you have to do? You have to go into Waterloo? Yeah, so I have out. to get the high-speed high train from Gravesend to London, then get the Piccadilly line to oh, Earl's Court, Jesus. then change at Earl's Court to get to Wimbledon, then just Wimbledon camp. to Southfields, something yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 Southfields, and then you walk down. Just camp with all yeah. the other people who are waiting for day tickets. I, I know, but I, did, I got in touch with Wimbledon, and I was like, can I drive? Can you give me a parking space, please? Because it only takes me an hour to drive from but, here. Yeah. Uh, and they said, oh, no, sorry, it's reserved for broadcast. Mike Dixon, it's reserved for Mike Dixon. <laughs> and I don't go anywhere near Wimbledon's public car parks and compete with the rest of that form. Kieran Gill will be, as we speak, uh, hopefully having rested on Sunday, uh, the middle Sunday, will be ready for week two, the, the big week at Wimbledon. Uh, and a book will be on the shelves called The Beautiful Game and the Ugly Truth, uh, Football's Tragic Link with Dementia. It is a very short at 180 pages, but it is methodical and something that I hope Martin Samuel promotes because uh, I can see him ripping into the football authorities. Um, but he's probably on holiday at the moment, a long-deserved holiday. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. When I was writing the book, I was thinking, should I make it a bit longer? But then I didn't want to just waffle on for the sake of waffling, I wanted to just get the facts in there, get my point across. 50,000, 60,000 um, words? Yes, I think about 63,000 words yeah. in the end. You know, I could have stretched it to more. I could I could have added another possibly different chapters. I could have done more on American football and the NFL and covered more of that side of things. But I wanted to focus on our football, on soccer. But the part I did... the, the chapter that I do mention the NFL I did think that was relevant to us because it's sort of I feel like that's a precursor to what could happen over here I didn't want to just make it long for the sake of making it long I, I wanted to get everything that I felt was important in there it's like I, I said in a message yesterday to a lady called Judith Gates who's the the wife of Bill Gates uh, the former Middlesbrough player who has dementia she sent me a message kindly and said she's read it from back to front she loves it and and I told her that my main concern was just making sure that I did people like her justice and she sort of reassured me that she thinks I have. So that that makes it worthwhile. Yeah, the, um, you call it ugly and tragic, but you also, at the end of the book, say that dementia is football's dirty secret. Uh, players don't want to come forward. And this, in the same way that Andy Woodward wrote his book about paedophile coaches, it, I mean, it's it's not, well, perhaps it is, as if not more criminal, but it's not apples and oranges. It's um, it's such a necessary book. And you've got Chris Sutton as one of the spokesmen for this. And uh, I think this will be in a lot of end of year lists. It's certainly on the shelves of the football library for which you, Kieran Gill, get your library card. Uh, do you want Mickey <sighs> Barron or Hugh McIlvanny on your library card as a kind of icon? I think I'll have Hugh McIlvanny. I'm yeah. going nowhere near Mickey Barron. <laughs> yes, yes, you you know where your talents lie, Kieran. Uh, we'll have a nice you time know, at Wimbledon, uh, and if you see Tim Henman, um, send him my best because my dad used to play golf with Tim. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a whole book in that. I hope you'll get to write another book, or maybe Martin Keown's memoir. I don't know if he's looking at that. Well, mentioned it in the past, but quite a while ago. It is quite an undertaking as well, um, and I, I have promised I'll get married in about. 
uh, three months, <gasps> and then we go on our honeymoon. So I've, I have promised to my other half, after the last two and a half years of grueling over this book, I think I'll take some time off. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, well, I'll leave that in because uh, that's because now it's in writing, and now that you have well, to, you have to stick with it. But um, best of luck with I mean, everything. The, I mean, that's the thing with writing writing a book. Every single day off you have from the newspaper, you know, from your day job. Every single day, I haven't had a day off. Every yeah, you know, I've been spending twelve hours a day on this on this book. Oh well, you were lucky. Things. You were lucky to go to America. You're not down pit. Yeah, exactly. Well. Yeah, exactly. Could have been worse.